Chasing Leviathan is a podcast about pursuing truth, one big question at a time through the discipline of listening. Truth is too big to tame. But if we pay close attention, we might get the chance to glimpse something truly magnificent. So please join me in this pursuit, one week at a time. I brought Dr. Bajalan onto Chasing Leviathan to help me better understand the modern Kurdish political situation. But it became clear as we talked, and this is what I love about podcasts, that I first had to understand what nationalism is before I could understand the historical context for the modern Kurdish political situation. And so what we decided to do is to take what ended up being a much longer interview and turn it into two episodes, one focused on what is a very distinct discussion about what is nationalism and another on the modern Kurdish political situation, and specifically the historical context that led into the creation of the modern Kurdish political situation. So I hope you'll take the time to listen to both and enjoy them. Thank you. Most of my experience with the Ottoman Empire in history has been either, sadly, video games or um, uh, Age of Empires. Um, (laughs) But... uh, I mean, I, you know, I was a history major in college, but it, generally the Ottoman Empire was the story told from the West as mm-hmm. the sick man of Europe, the antagonist, that sort of thing, um, a player in World War One, but not like a, a main actor. Uh, and so if you don't mind, and I, I don't think we'll be able to dig too deep into it, I want to be respectful of your time, but if in broad strokes, if you could tell us, uh, explain to us the Ottoman Empire and how its dissolution uh, led into the uh, Treaty of, uh, I'm going to probably pronounce this, but uh, of Lausanne, mm-hmm. and then the Treaty of, uh, oh, I'm sorry, the Treaty of Severus, and then the Treaty of Lausanne, and how uh, there were promises made and promises broken. And I think that would be really helpful to like, help people understand empire building in general, but also the... Like uh, maybe the plight of the Kurdish peoples too too strong a word, but the the current situation. Sure. So when we look at the Ottoman Empire, you know, it's very easy to like look at a historical atlas and you see like the green. It's usually green, and the like the green grows over time, and then the green starts shrinking. But of course, the the Ottoman Empire as a state, you know, evolved in you know involved in very different ways over time. The early Ottoman state uh, was, you know, a tribal confederacy, uh, you know, in Anatolia, relatively small. And then obviously in the, you know, 15th and 16th century, it evolved into a relatively centralized feudal state. And what I mean by that is, you know, you had a society where, you know, political power was derived from the control of land. And Mm -hmm. how, uh, you know, Machiavelli talks about this. And and, and why I say relatively centralized was that, you know, in uh, in France, for example, the feudal vassals, you know, had their own sort of direct relationship with their 
uh, with the population, you know, they were their own subject kingdoms and everything was run through them. Whereas in the Ottoman Empire, at least legally speaking, in the core regions of that empire, um, the Sultan was free to distribute, you know, uh, land grants to people. Uh, uh, for example, unlike in parts of Europe, the administration of justice was the purview of the Sultan. They had a system called the Qadi system, which was like a legal, you know, this wasn't applied everywhere in the empire, Kurdistan, the Kurdish area was a little bit different, the areas on the frontier were different, but you had this relatively, you know, centralized feudal state that was militarily quite successful, not necessarily because of technology, but because of organizational and logistical reasons. What I mean by this, for example, is like the king of Hungary, you know, one year he would call all his vassals and say, hey, we're going to go fight the Ottoman Empire, and they would come. But then the next year, when he calls them to campaign, they're like, yeah, we're not going to come, right? Whereas the Ottoman Sultan had a far stronger hold over his subordinates, so was able to sustain like a, a, a military every every year. The Ottomans pioneered, you know, building on pre-existing Islamic traditions. They pioneered, uh, you know, a kind of prof elite professional military, the Janissary, and there were also other uh, uh, groups like that. So you had this... Uh, you know, very much a kind of early modern state that was relatively centralized compared to Europe. Now, what happens is that state begins to decentralize uh, over time. Uh, there was significant social ch uh, change. Uh, you know, the Sultan becomes less of a kind of direct autocrat uh, and, you know, regional uh, leaders become more important who whose legitimacy is still based on, you know, being part of the Ottoman ruling class, but it's, instead of being a pyramid, it becomes more like a spider's web where, mm. the, where, the, where the Ottoman Sultan is the leader of a kind of network of elites across uh, the empire and also is increasingly restricted by elements of the uh, ruling class. Uh, so, for example... Uh, Baki Tezjan, who's a historian of this, talks about the rise of the ulama and the law lords who, you know, use Islamic law as a way to de legitimize deposing uh, sultan, sultans, creating a kind of almost a kind of constitutional order where, you know, under Suleiman the Magnificent, well, he's the emperor and you, you do what he says. Whereas in later periods, you know, the law lords, are, there's a kind of... Uh, unwritten constitution where there is, you know, there's a, there's legal justifications to depose and put an un, another member of the uh, ruling family mm. uh, in power. And increasingly, you have a marketized economy in the Ottoman Empire as well. A move so, you know, previously, um, you know, the land grants had been given to soldiers, you know, so that they could sustain themselves as part of the military system. Increasingly, those land grants are being used by people to like make money. You know, in the 18th century, you, you have processes like tax farming become quite uh, uh, common where, you know, the, the, the government basically sells the rights to collect taxes in a particular area to people. So the empire, uh, and, you know, this is, this helps the empire be to a certain degree more sustainable because right. you have like multiple nodes of political power. So, you know, in the old days, if you defeated the Sultan's army, you win, right? Whereas, you know, in the later period, because you have multiple zones, of, you know, because you have sort of multiple power bases, you have to defeat the governor of Baghdad, 
But then the governor of Mosul has his own army and you have to go defeat them. So, you know, there were advantages to this uh, uh, system. And, and this system is framed, you know, with a kind of broader conception of membership of the Ottoman identity of an Ottoman ruling class. Uh, the Sultan becomes a kind of cultural leader that people look up to less, you know, uh, uh, Voltaire says, well, you know, the Sultan's not that powerful. He can execute some slaves, but, you know, executing slaves in the harem is not like, ex is not like absolute power. You have this hmm. decentralized empire. And then you have this final phase in the 19th century where the Ottoman Empire attempts to reform itself along European lines and mm. to turn itself into an approximation of a modern European bureaucratic state, which obviously as part of that, there's an attempt to transform the Ottoman imperial identity into a national identity, to build a sense of Ottoman identity based around a common homeland, a common sense, a, a common set of civic rights, uh, a common, uh, you know, uh, uh, a, a common loyalty to the sultan as the representative of the people. And of course, this nation building project, like all nation building projects, has contradictions within it because you know they're trying to, uh, you know, win over non-Muslims to uh, be part of this Ottoman identity. But of course, Islam is very fundamental to what it is to be Ottoman. The, uh, uh, so there's always these, there's these kind of shifts. Again, you see this in a lot of nation building projects uh, uh, in the world, this like trying to like include different groups, exclude who's exclude different groups and, and, and things like that. So you have this process of Ottoman nation building, which goes along with this attempt to centralize and turn the Ottoman Empire from a decentralized uh, pre-modern or early modern imperial state into a modern, uh, you know, nations, uh, a modern nation state where the, where, which is based on the legitimacy of the people. I mean, the Ottomans uh, have a, uh, in the 1870s, they have a constitution that tries to, you know, uh, square that circle. And, uh, uh, you know, you have, various ge different generations of Ottoman reformers beginning to engage in, uh, you know, modern bourgeois politics. That mm. being, uh, you know, we want to, you know, we want modernity. We need to be modern. We need to be, you know, uh, treated as equals and we need to, you know, civilize our society. And that doesn't mean a complete capitulation to westernization, but rather, the creation of a new hybrid, a new type of Ottoman um, identity, which takes both from the paradigms of the West, but also tries to integrate that within kind of an Ottoman uh, context. So, for example, many of the arguments for constitutionalism in the Ottoman Empire were based not necessarily on sort of Western political theory but a reinterpretation of Islamic history, which said like, hey, you know, if we go back to the early days of Islam and if we go back to the days of the Rashid Dayun uh, 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 caliphs, these guys were not despots, but were actually uh, selected by the community to lead. So there's a kind of uh, saying that actually constitutionalism is like just an updated form of uh, Islamic uh, practice. 
there's there's an attempt to standardize, for example, Islamic morality through the mm-hmm. school system, right? So that people like uh, um, so people are practicing Islam in the correct state-sanctioned ways. So, for example, Sultan Abdul Hamid refused to allow Qurans that were not printed in the Ottoman Empire to circulate because the Islam was uh, during his reign. Islam was being used as a kind of uh, basis for uh, Ottoman uh, political identity. So, the this term Ottoman, what it is to be Ottoman, is transformed under these conditions of modernity into a nation-building project. But it isn't an artificial identity, just as any identity inherited from the past, whether it's Kurdish, Arab, Turkish, or Ottoman, um, all these identities have to be reinvented if they are Mm. to be the basis of a national identity. And the Ottoman identity was an identity that had existed, you know, from uh, as long as the empire as well. So it's it's not as easy. It's not as easy as saying, "Oh, there's a state identity from the top, and there's like these natural, organic identities underneath." But rather, these identities kind of uh, there are these different potential uh, uh, terms and identities that can be mobilized, and people mobilize them in different uh, in, in different ways. And yeah. it's always a contestation be, uh, between you know those who envisage in the 19th century envisage Ottomanism as being a kind of political nation with a cultural diverse that recognizes a cultural diversity within it uh, or all the way down to those who want to use religion as the basis of that identity and those who increasingly in the late 19th century uh, look towards imposing a kind of Turkish national identity on that. Although that Turkishness is always um, is always kind of complicated because um, firstly the many of the people advocating for the Turkification came from outside of the Ottoman Empire and even at the very late stages of the Ottoman em- uh, Empire the sort of Turkish tendency, approach different groups in different ways. So there was never really a hard attempt to Turkify the Arabs because, you know, the Arabs are, you know, Islam was also an important part of the identity. So there was, so there was this notion like, yeah, well, that makes no sense. But with regards to the Kurds on on the eve of the second world war, some Turkish nation builders were like, no, we can assimilate the, like Kurds, are in the let's assimilate them into Turkishness camp and Arabs uh, let's compromise with their Arab identity and try and create a, uh, you know, there was even talk of creating a dual monarchy, you know, like an you know, moving the capital to Halepo and having an Arab uh, Turkish f- uh, federation uh, in, in, in that way. And well, yeah. So, yeah, if, so yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and forgive me for interrupting. I just wanted to grab onto what you said there. I think it's really important because when we talk about these uh, processes, they seem smooth, right? But I love that you started to dig down into the details of it. And when we talk about these grand historical processes, we start thinking about the different camps and the different labels. And you can think of, well, there's this side and this side. But when you really get down into it, you get lots of conflicting loyalties where you literally have families that 
we'll argue about this at the dinner table and you won't just have like one person, you know, you have one side and the other side, then you'll have someone who disagrees with the points on this side, but also this side and they form something in the middle, just like we do today, right? Like you'll have different sides in, in any kind of political state, but uh, you know, because these national identities have so many different factors at play in them, people will agree and disagree to different extents even about those different factors, how important they are, what they agree on and what they don't agree on. And that can happen within towns, within communal groups, within families. It's a it's an incredibly messy and complex process. And I, I love that you kind of uh, pointed to that because the, the grand processes of history sometimes eclipse like uh, it's very important to understand it's not just this big smooth thing that happens it's actually just this incredibly complex uh tumultuous uh thing that's happening at, at a very uh miniature level as well as this larger level yeah exactly i mean and, and it's affected by contingencies in the historical process so for example in the mid 19th century uh, the the ruling class paradigm of Ottoman nation building focused very much on a kind of civic Ottomanism that you know although it had you know although they sought to propagate the Turkish language uh, it was propagated as just being functional as the kind of like language everybody should speak mm. and there was an attempt to um, you know there there was a shift away for example from the pre modern legal system where of Muslim superiority, because Muslims were superior within the legal system, to the creation of legal equality within, mm. uh, within the empire. And this kind of, uh, you know, Ottoman patriotism, where you would be an Ottoman patriot, whether you were a Christian or a Muslim or a Jew. Um, in 1876, 1877, there was a war with Russia, and the Ottoman Empire lost large parts of the Balkans. And this meant that the demographic balance within the Ottoman Empire shifted very decisively in the favor of Muslims. Right. So when Sultan Abdul Hamid uh, came to power in the late 19th century, his emphasis on you know you know reviving the Islamic component, which didn't necessarily mean you know reversing the legal equalities that existed, but rather uh, actively promoting. You know, kind of actively promoting his position as the caliph of Muslims, actively uh, promoting an official version of Islam, sending out missionaries to parts of the you know empire to make sure people like follow the. That made sense because now you've got far less, fewer non-Muslims in the empire, and perhaps it makes more sense that what can be the unifying identity? Well, the unifying identity can be. Islam, because what what do you imagine that the reaction of Muslims or many Muslims had been to the attempt to give Christians legal equality? Well, there was a kind of backlash to this, uh, which you know, um, you know, for a variety of not just ideological reasons but material re reasons, mm. namely that uh, in the mid nineteenth century, uh, the kind of provincial Muslim. Uh, upper classes had kind of been excluded from the reform process and lost a lot of their privileges. Mm. Uh, you know, that can't, and also at the same time, you know, Europe was becoming more and more influential. Well, you know, this was filtered through a kind of ideological lens and there was a reaction against 
this attempt to build a civic Ottoman national identity. And Abdul Hamid uh, was like, well, now we're a more Muslim empire. We have this Muslim backlash. We have, uh, 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 and this Muslim backlash in the 1870s is kind of interesting because this is when we see Muslim, non-Turkish Muslim groups begin to, you know, the first glimmerings of separatism, which are not a response to like the Ottomans trying to impose, you know, Turkish language and culture and assimilate, but are a, 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 a response to the weakness of the Ottoman Empire, that the Ottomans are weak and dying. The reason they're weak and dying is because they've kind of lost their Islamic path. But, you know, Arabs, Kurds, Albanians, we, we're still on the right path. And we're going to kind of, you know, chart our own way out. The first kind of glimmerings mm. of this because of, you know, because of the empire's weakness. So Abdul Hamid is like, well, we need to really forge this identity, which has two planks on it, which is one is like, let's do a lot of like Islamic propaganda, like through schools and things like that. The other rank is actually to appeal to the interests of these Muslim elites across the empire who'd been excluded from the reform process by mm. giving them good jobs in the administration, by bringing in their religious leaders, by, you know, distributing, you know, a patronage amongst them. Uh, so, you know, we see, see the shift, these shift in paradigms are also reflecting like the changes in material circumstances that existed within uh, Ottoman society. And then of course, you know, in the final phase of the Ottoman Empire, I mean, between 1908 and uh, uh, 1918, we have this constitutional era, which begins as a kind of restoration of this civic constitutionalism, but increasingly comes under the influence for, again, for a variety of different reasons, war, um, mm. rebellion, you know, the, 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 the pessimism, uh, at the ability of a uh, liberal kind of constitutional Ottoman patriotism to unite the empire. Um, that gives way to uh, Turkist factions increasingly becoming influential on policy and politics, uh, which doesn't mean they completely ever get, you know, gave up formally on the civic Ottoman patriotism, but, you know, increasingly there's this more aggressive centralizing a uh, uh, tendency where it's not just good enough to centralize the administration, but it's like perhaps we need to centralize the economy. Perhaps we need to perhaps we need to uh, uh, annihilate certain minority groups, which are just ultimately disloyal, right? Mm. Uh, which helps us explain the ethnic cleansing of Greeks, and of course during the war, mm. the Armenian uh, genocide. So we mm. have these we, we have these constant uh, uh, permutations in the Ottoman nation building process that are shaped by, you know, political uh, conflicts within Ottoman society, but also by broader uh, global trends and affairs. Yeah. And so, and that plays out in, uh, and I, I guess kind of as we, as we end here, how does that play out in what happens with the Treaty of Severus and the Treaty of Lausanne? Because that really kind of, I think, sets the, and maybe I'm misunderstanding, but that sets the trajectory for what's going on with the Kurdish people today. Well, yeah. So within the context of what I've, within the context of this, uh, you know, Ottoman nation building process, mm -hmm. you know, 
and broader Ottoman reform uh, process, we uh, you know we see you know elements of the Kurdish elite increasingly becoming interested in you know identity, their nationality, and those kind of things, and we see. Um, uh, we see, for example, and you know, this is like a, I guess, an oversimplification. We see the emergence of a Kurdish movement. The mm. reason I don't call it a Kurdish nationalist movement, although some people would term it that way, is because there's a kind of ambiguity within this within this movement. In the early phases of this movement, uh, at least amongst, let's say, the intellectual class, which is a class that has come into being through the Ottoman reform process. Uh, you, uh, Makes sense. These people, yeah. these people have gone to school uh, in modern Ottoman schools where they're familiar with modern sciences and modern technology. They speak French. They do all these things. And this early Kurdish movement begins to conceive of the Kurdish community as a nation, but also remains committed to a kind of pan-Ottoman nationalism and patriotism, and see, you know, uh, and this intellectual class, uh, uh, you know, looks to constitutionalism, which in the early 20th century was the revolutionary ideology, looks towards constitutionalism as a way for, for the Kurds to achieve modernity. When we think of the Kurdish question today, we think of it as a kind of question about whether Kurds should have a state or Kurds should not have a state. But always it's been more complicated than that because, you know, mm -hmm. in this early phase, you know, the question is less about whether the Kurds should not have a state or not, but rather how can the Kurds become educated and modern? How mm. can the Kurds over, you know, how can the underdevelopment of Kurdish society be overcome? And of course, the nationalist answer to that question is like, we get our own state and we do it ourselves, right? And there was a trend that within that movement that advocated for that. Ironically, that trend tended to come from the more traditional sections of Kurdish society because nationalism is an ideology that's like a rifle. You know, it's like you don't need to become, you don't need to go to like school to understand it. You can just like learn that ideology and it can have a utility to you. Uh, but the mainstream of the kind of new middle classes of Kurdish society was uh, we should achieve modernity through the Ottoman through Ottoman constitutionalism, hmm. and the, the 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 nationalist wing of the movement tended to come from there was some you know there were obviously some intellectuals that didn't agree with that and were like became nationalists, but there were also let's say tribal leaders who for them. The Ottoman process of centralization meant their authority was going down or they were having a difficult time. So nationalism was a useful ideology for them to, you know, it was a useful way for those kind of renegade intellect, Ottoman Kurdish intellectuals and those tribes to have a common framework for political action and have a common political program. So on the eve of the First World War, the dominant trend within the Kurdish, uh, within the Kurdish elites and, you know, within the Kurdish elites was a kind of loyalty to the Ottoman political project. What happens at the end of the First World War is that the Ottoman Empire is no longer seen as a viable political entity, number one. And number two, 
uh, nationalism and nationness is becoming is being used as the methodology to redraw the maps of Europe and the Middle East. Mm-hmm. So within that context, that intelligentsia, you know, the the irony is during the war, Second World War, the kind of nationalist Kurds were defeated, like militarily defeated. There was a guy called Abdurazak uh, uh, Khan. He tried to like lead a uh, with the help of the Russians, he tried to do what the, you know, Faisal and the Arab revolt did, you know, and have a rebellion amongst uh, amongst the Kurds with the support of the Russians. But they were militarily defeated because the Ottomans ended up beating the Russians during the First World War. So they were like liquidated. But this intelligentsia mm. that was primarily based in Istanbul, when the war ended, they were like, well, you know, they're redrawing the map on national lines. So it's self-evident that the Kurds should have their own state within this context. Again, there was a debate within this elite whether that state would be an autonomous state within a, a smaller Ottoman Empire or should be an, a, a completely sovereign and independent state. But this like quest for statehood became kind of the dominant trend and the big fight uh, came to be between those who wanted autonomy uh, and those who wanted a complete independence. So after the war, Kurdish uh, groups mobilized, in particular the uh, society. Yeah. Forgive so, me. I just want to make sure. When you're saying the war, you're talking about World War One. World War One. Yes. Yes. Okay. Just so at the, end sure. of, at the end of World War One, Kurdish uh, uh, Kurdish groups mobilized, and many of those uh, leaders within this new wave of mobilization had been involved in the Kurdish civil society that had come into being following the 1908 Constitutional Revolution, a civil society that had generally been uh, you know, directed towards you know, not agitation for Kurdish statehood, but rather education, economic development, cultural advancement, you know, his, you know, interest in history, all political things, right? But um, not statehood. This elite increase in uh, this new wave of mobilization you know, manifest in the formation of the Society for the Betterment of Kurdistan, which ended up splitting between pro-autonomy and pro, um, uh, set, you know, uh, independence factions. This group began lobbying hmm. uh, the great powers for inclusion, you know, you know, for a Kurdish state. And this obviously, you know, it, at the Treaty of Serves, uh, they were successful. They made an agreement with the Armenians who had overlapping territorial claims. And of course, there was bad blood between uh, Kurds and Armenians during the war because many Kurds had participated in the uh, uh, Armenian uh, genocide. But there was an agreement mm-hmm. reached. There was a treaty uh, you know, uh, ratif- uh, 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 signed, but it ultimately failed. And mm-hmm. the reason that it ultimately failed is less to do with what the Kurdish lobbyists had done or had not done, but more to do with the the the, the facts on the ground. Hmm. And although the war had set the stage for the partition of the Ottoman Empire, as I mentioned before, on the Eastern Front, Russia had been defeated. So when when the war ended, the majority of the Kurdish region was still under Ottoman control. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, when the British, you know, made treaties to separate the Arab pro- provinces from the Ottoman Empire, that reflected a, like a, a real concrete military 
uh, balance of power on the ground. The Ottomans had been booted out of those regions. When they made the Treaty of Serbs, which set up an Armenian state, which set up a, a, a Kurdish uh, autonomous region that might have a pathway to independence after a year, which gave land to the Greeks. Well, you know, there weren't troops on the ground to enforce that. The, and the Allied powers did not have the interest to do that. So what happened was the Ottoman government that had signed that treaty lost legitimacy. And we mm. see the emergence of Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, well, Mustafa Kemal Pasha, as he was at the time, who led a kind of rebellion from within the Ottoman state. It wasn't really a revolution in that sense, but rather the uh, structures of the Ottoman military, as well as the structures of the Committee of Union and Progress, the Young Turks, which was the like dominant political party that ruled the Ottoman Empire during this period, well, the, that old, the leadership of the Young Turks like fled the country, but all their yeah. institutions and you know party branches were still in, in place. They had, during the Battle of Gallipoli, stockpiled weapons. The Ottoman military that was in Anatolia had not been defeated uh, uh, in its entirety. It retreated, it still existed. So all that apparatus of state was picked up by Mustafa Kemal and... Uh, they were able to defeat Armenian attempts to take control of their region, defeat Greek attempts, and consolidate control over the Kurdish provinces. And the, one of the reasons they were able to do this so successfully was the legacy of the Armenian genocide, where they mm. were able to make the case to many Kurdish tribal leaders who were the pa real powers on the ground that those Kurdish elites in the capital, they're signing a treaty with the Armenians and that treat, those treaties with the Armenians are going to be like, they're, they're going to just mean that the Armenians are going to come and get revenge on you. Mm. So, and it's important to notice during this phase uh, of, uh, you know, known as the War of Independence in, in Turkish history, but was kind of a civil war that was taking place in Anatolia between uh, Muslims and non-Muslims. Uh, the, the Mustafa Kemal, the founder of modern Turkey, was not making Turkish nationalist propaganda, but making Islamic-based propaganda. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, uh, the British, who controlled their own little bit of Kurdish territory, didn't really have an interest in sending, you know, hundreds of thousands of troops to create a, a Kurdish state right. uh, on the ground. And for the Kurdish regions that would become part of Iraq, there were a whole host of reasons that they wanted to include them in the new state of Iraq to balance out the Shia population, which the British were kind of, the British had a kind of Orientalist view that the Shias were like irrational and the Sunnis were more rational. And so, you know, uh, and they wanted to bring in, a, you know, a king. So, uh, and there were strategic reasons. Uh, there was the question of oil in, in the north of the country. So, the great powers didn't have an interest in imposing uh, Kurdish statehood. And Turkish uh, uh, military resistance, the resistance of the remnants of the Ottoman state that would become the you know, basis for the Turkish Republic, they were able to mount a strong enough resistance and win over enough Kurdish support to make it like completely politically implausible to do. So when the Treaty of Lausanne came into being, this reflected this reflected the facts on the ground that had existed, not even at the end of the war, but in 1917. 
where yeah. the critical moment is that when the Bolshevik Revolution happened and the Russian army collapsed, that meant that Kurdistan and Armenia, or the those territories of Anatolia, uh, they were reoccupied by the Ottomans. And, uh, and so the partition that was agreed to was a partition that had shaken out be, uh, you know, basically because of the Bolshevik Revolution and the British advance in Iraq, served as always a kind of pipe dream of like a maximalist like punishment and partition of the Ottoman Empire, and ultimately failed because of A, military re resistance from the remains of the Ottoman state, and B, there was just no great power interested in establishing a Kurdish state. And, you know, this is, you know, where the question of, um, you know, sympathy and organization comes in. If we look at the Armenian example, there was far more European and American sympathy towards the Armenians than the Arabs. Mm. Uh, and the Armenian nationalist movement was far more organized and sophisticated than that of the Arabs. But the Arabs got a state because, you know, of the military balance of power. Uh, the Armenians didn't get a state because of the military balance of power, not because, you know, like there was innate hostility or they were less organized than anyone else. And this leads to a crucial point that, you know, people have made before. It's not an original point by me, but it's something that gets a little bit lost because we live in an era where everybody wants to talk about agency. Uh, yes, agency matters, but within the when we talk about which states end up being, uh, you know, created and which don't, it's important to understand that nationalism and the nation state are not simply something that evolves within distinct communities or distinct societies, but it is a global system of political organization. And mm. whether a movement or a people or a group can be recognized as a nation comes down primarily to a military balance of power and the acceptance of the, wor the world of nation states that you can come into that world of nation states. And so, you know, even today that leads to kind of all kinds of complexities because, for example, you know, Russia can recognize Abkhazia or the West can recognize Kosovo, but they can't ever fully become part of the world of nation states because the, not everybody in the system signs off on them. But they're able to exist de facto as nation states because of the military balance of power. Or you have uh, even a more recent example is you have a Catalonian referendum uh, uh, where, you know, the people vote for independence in Catalonia. But because Spain says no and, you know, comes in, well, you know, is anyone else going to come in and allow the Catalonians? You know, they voted for it, you know, for better or for worse. So... You know, it is it is not really the, you know, there's that I don't think you can think of a single example mm -hmm. of a separatist movement being successful without external support and recognition. The American Revolution would have been crushed without the support of, uh, 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 you know, France. The French, yeah. Uh, the, the Haitian Revolution, you know, would have been crushed without the support of Spain initially. And, um, you know, Bangladesh would have been crushed if the Indians hadn't come in. So, you know, another you, an important, you know, important uh, uh, understanding what the decisive factor 
is regarding the success of a failure of a national movement is not how well organized or how objectively a community feels itself as a nation, but is ultimately the concrete geopolitical balance of power. Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, I think we have to wrap up uh, for our time here, but kind of, uh, <laughs> I think you definitely deserve that drink. That was uh, incredibly concise and so helpful. I'd never had such a clear explanation of what happened to form uh, those different nation states in the wake of, of World War One. Um, so one, thank you. Uh, and two, as we kind of wrap up here and conclude, uh, what is one thing that you would leave for our listeners to learn um, or to maybe explore further uh, in this whole discussion? I mean, I guess one of the things I would leave people with is that uh, when thinking about you know, ethnic or national com conflicts, try and avoid immediately accepting a simple binary that it is a conflict between two groups uh, over a nation state. It may mm. be, but, you know, often, uh, you know, often there's a kind of more complex history involved. If we, another example, if we fast forward to the, you know, modern Kurdish movement for a moment. Uh, you know, that's a whole kettle of fish, of course, that we didn't get uh, get into. Another time, hopefully. <laughs> Another time, yeah. But, you know, after the Treaty of Lausanne, you know, mm -hmm. the Kurdish population is partitioned between different countries. And obviously the Kurdish movement within each of those different countries has taken on different characteristics because there's different, you know, geopolitical uh, relations between those countries and the great powers. Those countries have different political evolutions and so on and so forth. But, you know, one of the things that kind of annoys me about journalists is when they talk about, let's say, the Kurdish movement in Turkey mm -hmm. or the Kurdish movement in Syria, whether you agree with those movements being, you know, good movements or bad movements or terrorists or not terrorists, is they're often just called Kurdish nationalists. And that implies that the conflict is about statehood. But yeah. uh, the Kurdish movement in both Syria and uh, Turkey today, although not, you know, at different periods this was different, their stated explicit political goals are, you know, not just that they don't want a nation state, but that they don't believe the nation state would resolve the Kurdish question. Mm. Like uh, they have a notion that, um, you know, like there should be some kind of like confederalism, there should be uh, kind of municipal kinds of government and things like that. And again, it's not whether you agree with them or not, but by saying nationalist uh, or saying that they're fighting for Kurdish statehood misses the point that you know, in many of these conflicts, um, the demands are often you know quite different from uh, how we think uh, how we think of them, and there are often you know contestations and different opinions uh, within the group. No group is a monolith, even with the even mm. within groups who regard themselves as being Kurdish patriots or you know 
Kurdish, uh, part of the Kurdish movement. There are very different, uh, uh, you know, there are very different perceptions and views of what a resolution uh, to that question uh, would look like. And one thing, you know, we might hope for is that, you know, some of these, um, I think the history of the world shows that, you know, the creation of new nation states, although obviously it's kind of morally defensible because like if one group gets a state, the other group doesn't get a state, but very, uh, you know, um, very often um, the creation of new states doesn't actually resolve any of these questions, but throws up a whole load of uh, new questions. That doesn't mean, you know, you buy into the, you know, nation state nationalism of the dominant group, but we should try and uh, think beyond uh, uh, the nation state. Now, what that looks like, I don't know. Can it be achieved under, you know, modern capitalism? I don't know. You know, the nation state, <laughs> the nation state is the fundamental building block of hmm. uh, uh, the mo the modern world, and it the spread of the nation state through, you know, first through the, uh, you know, conflicts in Europe in the nineteenth century, through the end of the First World War, and then through decolonization, represent the victory of not only the nation state, but also capitalism. Hmm. Any attempt that there has been to move beyond the nation state has ultimately you know, failed. They tried in the Soviet Union to you know, move beyond the nation state, it failed, right? You know? um, and so you know, we, we, we live in the, and this is why I would say you know, you know, as, a, you know, as someone on the political left, that's why I would say that converse, you know, it, you know, in opposition to what many people on the left would say, I would say like decolonization, although obviously morally defensible, was also a great defeat because, mm. you, know, uh, you know, the end of empire did not, you know, we didn't replace empire with something superior. We just extended the system of, of nation states to the rest of the world, and by extension, you know the the, the global system uh, of, of capitalism. And the analogy I would give is like you know decolonization is a lot like the um, the exp extension of the franchise. That you know we <laughs> believe the extension of the franchise would lead to a more equal and more just society, but it hasn't. Right? Hmm. Just because everybody has the vote doesn't mean we live in a more equal society, uh, although there's a potentiality for that. And just because today we've ended empires and we've created mm. a former system of nation states and, and, and sovereignty, it doesn't mean we've like overcome the inequalities in the global system. And unfortunately, the only alternative presented at the moment is a, a kind of, uh, you know, that you'll have like a kind of uh, autarky, where you'll resist Western uh, 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 resist Western imperialism, but you know the ultimate logical extension of that is like isolation, because of course the whole world is dependent on one another uh, for, uh, is dependent on one another for trade. So it's like really it's a really mm. difficult conception for us to 
come up. And to finally, I guess, get to the Kurdish question is, you know, the Kurds in Iraq, although they didn't quite get to the full sovereign independence, are functionally operate as a largely independent nation state. That hasn't resolved the Kurdish question. And perhaps the greatest tragedy is not only hasn't it resolved the Kurdish question, the Iraqi Kurdish autonomous region in many ways now just serves as a gendarme uh, for like policing the rest of the Kurdish community and other parts mm. of, of Kurdistan because for them to continue to exist, they have to keep Turkey and Iran on board, which have their own uh, Kurdish populations. So, you know, I, you know, I don't pretend to have any answers to this, but I think, you know, like, I do think overall, like the nation state is, again, morally defensible, but as an ultimate solution can only take you so far. I guess, you know, being tortured by someone who speaks your own language for political crimes is better than being tortured by someone who speaks <laughs> another language. But at the end of the day, you're still getting tortured. Uh, <laughs> uh, what a tremendous ending line. Uh, Dr. Bajalon, uh, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much.